From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's a given that our bodies don't seem to work quite as well when we get older. But there are some things we can do to help ensure that we stay healthy as we age and enjoy a quality of life that makes getting older worth it. Let's suppose Grandma and Grandpa died of colon cancer. Are the kids destined for colon cancer? Absolutely not. If people follow a high-fiber and a low-fat diet and if they exercise, they dramatically shift the odds. Our genes are not destiny. Also on the program, dietary supplements and energy drinks that may lead to a visit to the ER. And a new FDA warning about surgical mesh devices used to repair pelvic organ prolapse in women. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, here's an interesting quote. It's paradoxical that the idea of living a long life appeals to everyone, but the idea of getting old doesn't appeal to anyone. (laughs) That's a quote from the late CBS 60 Minutes commentator Andy Rooney, and it probably sums up how most of us feel about aging. We spend much of our lives looking forward to our golden years, but you know when we get there, we're greeted by some things that aren't so pleasant. Aches, pains, and chronic illness. Well, here to talk about how you can stack the odds in your favor when it comes to aging and increase the chances that you'll live a healthy life as you get older is Dr. Ed Cragen. Dr. Cragen is the editor-in-chief of the book Mayo Clinic on Healthy Aging and the author of How Not to Be My Patient. Dr. Cragen's day job is an oncologist and a palliative care specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cragen. Tracy, thank you. A tremendous honor to be here. You know, Woody Allen said he was not afraid to die. He just didn't want to be there when it happened. (laughs) (laughs) So I see you brought your books with you. Yes. Are those, do you hand those out? Yes. The How (laughs) Not to Be My Patient um, is a recipe. It's a cookbook to go the distance for a meaningful, productive life. And for our listeners who may read the book and don't like it, if they eat it, they get 90 grams of fiber, and that decreases the risk of colon cancer. So it's a win-win for everyone. I see that. That's a new addition, isn't it? How to be, not to be my patient? Yes. The first one was overwhelmingly successful. This launched on Amazon several months ago. The phones are ringing off the hook. We now have a server farm outside of Memphis to launch the books. <laughs> now, the Mayo Clinic uh, book on healthy aging, has been a, a popular, a yes. big seller too, hasn't yes. it? Yes, the Mayo Clinic Plan for Healthy Aging and the Mayo Clinic on Healthy Aging have been two of the best sellers in the Mayo Clinic portfolio of health-related issues. Now, I said in the introduction that you're an oncologist yes. by trade. That's where you get started. Yes. And how did you make the bridge into talking about healthy aging and how not to be a patient? I would presume it's something you learned from your patients. The vast majority of patients with serious cancers have a cancer related to lifestyle issues and poor decisions and poor choices. So if we follow a plant-based diet, if we do not smoke, if we moderate our use of alcohol, we will shift the odds in our favor. We should eat like rabbits because you never see rabbits in doctors' offices. So without question, over half of all cancers are directly related to the choices that people make. Not their genetics. No. 
our genes are not destiny, and we can modify our genes. Let me give you an example. Each of my parents drank themselves to death. They were alcoholics. I am the only son of two drunks. What's the probability that I inherited the gene for alcoholism? Like 100%. When I was in junior high, a light bulb went on and said, hey, look, you have the bad genetic twists. Don't drink. End of story. So with information, we can modify our environment to go the distance. Another example. Let's suppose grandma and grandpa died of colon cancer. Are the kids destined for colon cancer? Absolutely not. There is now a Mayo Clinic stool test approved by the FDA, which may make colonoscopies obsolete. If people are at risk for colon cancer and they follow a high-fiber diet, a low-fat diet, and if they exercise, they dramatically shift the odds in your favor. Even if you've got the genes that are not so good when it comes Absolutely. to colon cancer. The same with breast cancer. If women are exercising, if they follow a low-fat diet, if they get periodic mammograms, they will shift the odds in their favor, even though they may have that unfortunate twist on the DNA. Our genes are not our destiny. I'd say that... Uh even 30 years ago, old people were in my family and where I grew up were in their 70s. Yes. And now old people are in their 90s and into 100. And if somebody dies before they're 90, you think, oh, that's too bad. It, people are living a lot Absolutely. longer. And so aging is a bigger part of that because you're around longer. And most of us will spend more years in retirement than active years working at the firm, the foundry, the factory, or for a major institution. At the early part of the 1900s, 1900s, the average lifespan was 47. In southeast Minnesota, it would be normal for people to live into their 90s and into 100. If a woman is 65, she can look forward to 20 additional years of life. If you make it to 65? Yes. If a couple makes it to 65, the odds are overwhelming they will make it to 90 together. But the serious news is that most women will spend the last 20 years of their lives without their partner. So financial planning prudent estate work is crucial, especially for women. So the women can quit listening, but for the men. (laughs) (laughs) So you you talked about a a plant-based diet. You talked about not smoking. Give us a little more, uh, some tips on alcohol uh, with regard to aging and use of alcohol. uh, The data are overwhelming that responsible drinking has something to do with decreasing the risk of heart disease and increasing longevity. And the usual recommendation for gentlemen, it would be no more than six ounces of wine a day, preferably red wine. And for women, that would be four ounces of wine. Now, if one comes from a background of alcoholism, that's not a good gig. But in general, if there is not an alcoholic tendency, wine seems to be the right thing to do. So wine is okay. A little bit more about diet. You talk about a plant-based diet, and, and tell us exactly what you mean and, and why that's so important, not only for the prevention of cancer, but also for the prevention of the other major killers in this country, heart disease and stroke. There is no question whatsoever that the plant-based diet consists of whole grains, green leafy vegetables, colored fruits and vegetables, and legumes. 
I might add that my wife, Peggy Menzel, is a dietitian. She's a German dietitian, so that's why I look like this, very thin. And we eat no saturated fats of animal origin. We have fish, but no poultry, no chicken, no turkey, no meat, and no pork. Now, that might be viewed as being somewhat monastic, and if one would have a problem with that approach, the alternative is to limit meats. And the usual recommendation is two servings a week of meat about the size of a hockey puck, which would be uh, approximately four ounces. That's a pretty small steak, isn't it? You can change your tastes. I think people would think, man, there's no way that I could ever give up my steak. But you really can kind of change your palate. And you dramatically decrease your risk of a stroke or a heart disease or cancer. And and I've shared with audiences, uh, our Mayo benefit package is wonderful, but if I drop dead, Mayo takes my pension and builds a parking ramp in my honor, and it doesn't give me a warm, fuzzy feeling. So for our gentlemen listeners to go the distance, plant-based diet and decreased meat intake. All right, before we finish up this segment, so tell us, a typical day, what would you have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Um, typically, my wife and I are up at 4.15. In we, the morning? Yes. Now, what are you doing? Can't sleep? <laughs> Please don't answer that. Just continue along. <laughs> Since we are on the air, there will not be a rebuttal, but invite me back. <laughs> we are always training for something. So we hit the road typically at 4.30 or quarter to 5. We come back, and I will typically have uh, bran cereal with raisins, nuts, and a banana, I will typically have 20 ounces of pure caffeine. <laughs> I often wonder... the day started. Oh, oh, absolutely. If the pulse is not 140, if my pupils don't look like saucers, it's not going to be a good day. So that's breakfast. Uh, for lunch, I have the same thing every day. Peggy makes for me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I will have a banana, and I will have a low-fat yogurt and also some nuts. Although a few days ago, Peggy uh, forgot to put the jam in the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I almost aspirated. This was not the start of a good afternoon. You need more coffee on that lunch. Absolutely. And typically our dinner always includes a salad, typically legumes, pasta, fish, Potatoes, starches, but certainly no meat. Legumes. You keep talking about these legumes. What are the legumes? Legumes <laughs> are types of beans which are indigenous to many emerging nations like Iowa. <laughs> i got to separate the two of you. We're going to take a break. We're talking about staying on the healthy side of life with Mayo, on- Mayo Clinic oncologist and author Dr. Ed Cregan. When we come back, we have to cover stress and relationships and spirituality. And why you'd ever get up at 4.15 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> More tips on healthy aging with Dr. Cregan. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. We are with oncologist, author, and palliative care specialist, Dr. Ed Cragen. He's also an expert on healthy aging. So, Dr. Cragen, we've covered diet. We've covered alcohol. We've said no tobacco. Uh, you, you've recommended everybody get enough sleep, but you doesn't sound like you do unless you go to bed at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but you get up at 4.15. Typically 4.15, but... We cannot burn the candle at both ends. So by 8.30 or 9 o'clock, we are in bed. 
sometimes I'm putting on my pajamas in the ramp. It's rather colorful. <laughs> but we need seven hours of sleep, and people think they can cut corners, and they cannot. And if we get less than restorative sleep, we are functioning at the legal level of intoxication, which means a blood alcohol level of 0.08%. We cannot cut corners on sleep. Relationships. I know that they're important. I've read that they're important as you as you age. And we all know that women are much better at forming, keeping, maintaining relationships than men are. So what advice have you got for the guys? Find a friend. Find someone that you can call to talk about the twins, the Vikings, what life is like, what wakes you up at 4 o'clock in the morning. For our listeners, simply go to a restaurant and look at five women having dinner. They're laughing. They're having a good time. They're connected. Look at five men having dinner. They're whining about their PSA, their high cholesterol, the stock market. So without that confident, someone that you can go to coffee with or play cards with, you dramatically decrease your risk of going the distance. I have a friend who's middle-aged with me, and he says that men don't figure this out until they're in their 40s or maybe 50s, that they that how, how important that is in their life. They also figure it out when they're in the coronary care unit and they had a heart attack. Dr. Steve Kopeski is, is a brilliant cardiologist, and he has shared with me the most significant question relative to surviving a heart attack is one question. Does anybody care if you live or die? And if you say nobody cares, the probability is overwhelming. You will not make it out of the intensive care unit. Well, talking about life or death in that situation, then let's talk about spirituality. I've been touched by... 40,000 contacts with the terminally ill. 40,000. You do the math. 40,000. And I've looked for an atheist. I've never found one. Likewise, you never find atheists in foxholes. Now, a couple of years ago, I was on our death and dying service at St. Mary's Hospital, and I met a prominent pianist, a keyboardist, dying of colon cancer. And he told me he believed that when he died, he simply disintegrated, and that was the end of the story. And I'm thinking, you know, pal, you're just killing my study here. (laughs) So the next day I came back and we talked, and he also reached out for a higher power, however he may have defined that higher power. Never have I seen someone who was willing to go it alone when that curtain's coming down. So what you're saying is that obviously there are some some atheists uh, who have gotten cancer, but you're saying that once that they're in that situation, they become believers? They become believers in a power, in an energy, in a chi, in a karma over and above themselves. Mm -hmm. At that 11th hour, everybody is looking for a loophole, so to speak. (laughs) however you may define that belief system. And the evidence are overwhelming. People who are part of a faith community live longer than those who are not part of a faith community. Are they more likely to survive cancer? Absolutely. And what may happen, Mrs. Jones goes to church every Sunday. She sits in the front pew on the right side, and she's surrounded by elderly widows. If she doesn't show up for two Sundays, guess what happens? Knock on the door. Ethel, how are you doing? Then Ethel's boyfriend comes to the door. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We we can't finish this off without talking about stress because, I don't know, I might say that diet and sleep 
are just as important as stress, but maybe people think they can handle stress a little bit better than they actually can. Tracy, our lifestyles are absolutely killing us because of the glut of technology. Let me share with our listeners a couple of numbers. Every day on our smartphones, there are 250,000 apps 250,000 apps. On Amazon, and I'm not talking about the river in Brazil, there are 24 million consumer products that you can buy with one touch. In the medical community, there are 20,000 papers published every five days. We are deluged with technology, and the only way to survive is to turn off anything that buzzes, beeps, or vibrates. And if we have a smartphone between you and I, and that smartphone is muted, that decreases our problem-solving potential, the very fact that it's there. And for our listeners, if you are driving and if you are texting, if you are on the phone, you are driving with the equivalent of legal intoxication. Well, you're also connected more often. You're connected whether you're with your family or with your work. I mean, it's something that you're plugged into, and it seems like that's one of the keys to it is having that unplugged time. We need that space. We need serenity. We need that moat, or none of us will go the distance. And if you look at the lives of every spiritual leader, regardless of the tradition, Throughout their ministry, they went to the garden, they went to the ocean, they went to the sea, they went to the desert for time to renew their batteries and then go into the arena. Meditation a big deal? Absolutely. There are various forms of meditation. It's become trendy. And I think the key concept in meditation is mindfulness, to be present, to be engaged, to listen to be connected to that person and not looking at the phone. How many times are we at dinner and you see the all-American couple and mobs on her phone, dad's on the tablet, and the kids are under the table <laughs> with Instagram? It sounds to me like you better have your legumes tonight, have a couple of glasses of wine, and uh, get to bed early and make sure you get seven hours of sleep. That's true. Dr. Ed Cragen is an oncologist and palliative care specialist at Mayo Clinic. He is also author of How Not to Be My Patient and editor-in-chief of Mayo Clinic on Healthy Aging. Good to have you here, Dr. Cragen. Likewise, Tom. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, millions of Americans take dietary supplements every day with no ill effects. But a recent study found that some weight loss products and energy drinks lead to thousands of trips to the ER. We'll talk about supplement safety with our experts. And the latest on an FDA high-risk alert for surgical mesh devices used in the transvaginal repair of pelvic organ prolapse. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic for us to cover? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. We all know that getting a flu vaccine prevents the flu, but that's not all. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says it's been shown that if you get a flu shot, it will lower your risk of having a heart attack or stroke by about 50% during that flu season. Really? Yes. You see, the influenza virus can cause an inflammatory response all over your body. That's why you feel miserable. And when that happens, it can also irritate the lining of your arteries. 
arteries. If those arteries are already in trouble with plaque buildup, the inflammation can prompt a tear. A blood clot could form, blocking blood flow to your heart or brain, causing a heart attack or stroke. Dr. Kopetsky tells his patients to get a flu shot, not because he's so worried about them getting the flu, but he's concerned about them having a heart attack or stroke. And once they hear that, they say, I'm getting my flu shot this year. And in other news, childhood asthma has made headlines in recent years because of an upward trend in the number of cases that may have changed. A government study published in the journal Pediatric shows asthma rates may be leveling off or even declining, but not for poor children. The researchers did not examine why the decline or leveling off is happening, but they say it may have to do with declines in air pollution and stabilizing childhood obesity rates. Here's Mayo Clinic's Dr. Avni Joshi. We do think environmental exposures are important risk factors. Obesity is an important risk factor. Kids growing up in poverty is a risk factor, both in terms of diet, hygiene, and environmental pollution, as well as obesity. So we do think those are risk factors, but we as such do not understand the underlying etiology for asthma. So as exposures to these risk factors has leveled off, the incidence seems to have the prevalence seems to have plateaued over time. Dr. Joshi says while the leveling off of childhood asthma is encouraging, it may be a bit too early to confirm there's actually a decline. She says more research is needed. And that's a look at your Mayo Clinic News Minute. I'm Vivian Williams. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to a recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine, an estimated 23,000, that's 23,000 emergency room visits take place every year in this country because of adverse events related to dietary supplements. Can you believe? Now, these events commonly involved symptoms like severe allergic reactions, heart trouble, nausea, vomiting, and they were brought on by weight loss products and energy drinks taken primarily by younger adults, people who either want to lose weight or get energized. Yeah, about 10% of those require hospitalization. Here to talk about this study and the safety of dietary supplements is Dr. Brent Bauer. Dr. Bauer is a specialist in general internal medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's also director of the Complementary and Integrative Medicine Program at Mayo. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bauer. Well, it's great to be back. This is a huge industry, isn't it? Not just the supplement industry, the dietary supplement industry, but these supplements promise to make you thinner, more muscular, smarter, super energized. People spend billions of dollars every year on this stuff. Yeah, it's hard to estimate the market actually, but somewhere between 40 and $50 billion a year is probably what Americans are spending on supplements. It's a huge market, but this story from the New England Journal of Medicine has to do with how dangerous they can they can be if not used correctly. Yeah, and it's a good story in that regard because it helps us point out things that everybody should know. And the first thing is there's no magic bullet, right? If you're looking for a shortcut and you want to lose weight, Supplements aren't your answer. If you're, if you're fatigued, an energy drink isn't your answer, right? The better question is, if I'm fatigued, let's ask why. Let's go back and see how is your sleep? How's your nutrition? How's your stress management? All the things that probably make us fatigued shouldn't be addressed by a quick fix. And yet that's the mentality many Americans approach dietary supplements with, and that's what tends to get people in the trouble. So there are obviously some side effects that you have to be concerned about. But the other question is, do these do any good? Well, see, now that's a good question because we have these two kind of polar camps, right? So sort of the New England Journal of Medicine article comes out. It's horrible. Supplements are killing people. We're going to the emergency room. It sounds like 
supplement should be thrown away and never, never ever discussed again. Then on the other hand, we have some famous TV doctors who come out and seem to be promoting supplements as the answer to everything, right? But they get paid a lot to do that. Uh, I think that's a question for somebody smarter than me. <laughs> but you're absolutely There's no right. no question. It's unbelievable how much they get paid right. to endorse this stuff. So, so I think the trouble is now we have two really uh, extreme camps. One saying supplements are evil and the other saying they're, they're salvation for everything. And the truth is neither of those camps is correct. It lies in the middle. It lies in the middle because you really shouldn't be using these as shortcuts for weight loss or shortcuts for fixing fatigue. What you should do is you should create a foundation for good health, good nutrition, good exercise, good stress management, stay connected, honor your spirituality. Guess what? Study after study shows telomeres will grow. And if you remember some of our previous conversations, telomeres are the caps on the genes. Growing telomeres means growing health, maybe even reversing aging. How do we get those to grow? Nutrition. Exercise, stress management, stay connected, honor your community and spirituality, and those things have been shown to actually help us at a genetic level. And you notice in there, no supplements. All right. Let's say that you uh, were pretty certain that uh, a particular compound or chemical X, if you took it, it would do this. It would do something. But the problem is you don't know. There's no regulation on what X is, whether X is actually X. Well, Tom, again, good question, and it just gives us a chance to update things a little bit. There is quite a bit of regulation now on supplements in the United States. Oh, there is. So as of 2010, something called good manufacturing practices have been mandated. And that means if you import, manufacture, in any way bring a supplement to the shelf, you now are required to know how it was harvested, how it was processed, and what the final content is. Does it have what it says in on the label has to be in the jar? So a totally different realm than it was even five or ten years ago. So there's much more regulation. And so now what we have to do is now as consumers, we have to be smarter because the products are on the shelf. They're probably much better quality, yet we're still getting this whipsaw from they're horrible to everybody should take them. And the truth is we should come in the middle because there are some people need to take. For example, some of the diabetic medications can lower your B12 level. Guess what? Those people need to take a B12. There are lots of older people who are vitamin D deficient. And we know those people tend to fall more often. And we know they tend to fall less if they get their vitamin D deficiency fixed. Hmm. So they should take vitamin D. Uh, if I have high triglycerides, I'm going to take fish oil in addition to my diet and exercise. So the point is there's many dietary supplements that have evidence-based and are treating a targeted condition for an individual patient. Notice I didn't say everybody should take vitamin D. Everybody should take B12. Everybody should take fish oil. That's ridiculous. And that's where you get people in the trouble. People hear something, they jump, and they don't go back and say, well, let me talk about this with my doctor, my care team. Do these results apply to me? Have I done the lifestyle stuff first? The first question isn't, Tom, you have high triglycerides, let's take fish oil. The first question is, are you eating healthy? How about your fruits and vegetables? What's your sugar intake? What's your exercise like? Can I pull in this study from the Journal of the American Medical Association that has to do with something that I can see becoming an issue in my house because I've got a teenager and a future teenager, and teenagers and 20-somethings seem to love energy drinks. And there was recently a study about that as well and how dangerous that can be. Yeah. So we've seen, and and I think this study from the New England Journal of Medicine just reflects that. What was the most common complaints uh, they were associated with energy drinks, and they were mostly palpitations, chest pain, high blood pressure, and so forth. Well, guess what? If an energy drink is powerful enough to raise your energy level, it probably contains something active, like very high-dose caffeine. So a lot of people do not do well with 24 cups of coffee, and yet many of these energy drinks have that much caffeine. 24 cups. Sure. 
So, so this is where we can get people into trouble, right? Because we're not approaching these like they are a powerful substance. If they're powerful enough to help us, they're powerful enough to hurt us. So when you don't treat them with respect, and unfortunately many of our kids, you know, if you're 15, 20, you think you're invincible. And you have no time to listen to, well, fuddy-duddy mom and dad don't want me to drink those, but I know better. And we see kids get into trouble, young, healthy kids. So imagine when we have older people with heart disease or other problems willy-nilly taking things that they assume are safe because they fall in this category of dietary supplements. And when it, what is happening to kids that are getting sick? Is that they are getting, they're throwing up, their heart's racing? What's happening? So, you know, just imagine if you've had six or seven or eight cups of coffee. 24 cups of coffee. Yeah. You do that to me. So, so imagine how you feel. You get jittery. You may start to feel a little panicky. A lot of these people get heart racing. And sometimes those palpitations become so fast they can become dangerous. And if they have an underlying heart problem or if it's an older person with heart disease, the opportunity to have heart attack, strokes. I mean, this is what happened, if you remember back with ephedra, remember when the baseball players were dropping like flies, mm-hmm. it seemed, for a while there, because they were going to camp out of shape, trying to get ready, drop some weight, took ephedra. Well, ephedra is a stimulant, and a lot of those people got into trouble. So again, it's not that supplements are bad. It's not that they're good. It's each individual supplement has to be approached by the individual with their care team to decide, is it something that's useful in a targeted fashion for my health? So you should think about these energy drinks that you buy at a checkout at the grocery store or at the gas station as a supplement and not as a beverage that Absolutely. you are. Yeah. Okay. If they're, if they're going to make you feel better, if they're going to give you energy, there is some active ingredient. Any active ingredient can, just like any medication, I give medications all the time. Some of them help my patients tremendously. A few of them cause adverse side effects. Same thing with anything natural. So you uh, obviously recommend some supplements in particular situations, uh, but the, the study uh, showed that there were some potential adverse effects. Which, what are the biggest offenders? Which type of supplement, dietary supplement? Yeah, so I think where you see the most trouble and also some of the worst claims are in the muscle building, uh, weight loss, and energy. Because most of those are, hey, I'm going to help you, and I'm going to do it with a shortcut, and you don't have to lift weights and exercising and healthy. I'm going to get you there faster. And to do that, if they have any effect at all, they're probably using something pretty powerful or dangerous. So tell us again, bottom line, what you ought to do before you take any supplement. So first of all, Ask the questions, right? We can do a lot of research on our own now. We've got a great Internet, lots of places to go. So do a little homework. Just because something sounds good in a study doesn't necessarily mean it applies to you, or maybe you're using different medications that won't allow you to do it. Do your homework, think about it, then come back to your care team and ask your care team, okay, I've done my research. I think supplement X may be good for me. Now you know me as my care team. Tell me if it's really going to be good, will interfere with my medications. Have that kind of conversation before you embark on something you're going to put in your body for the next 5, 10, or 20 years. Great advice. Dr. Brent Bauer, Director of the Complementary and Integrative Medicine Program at Mayo Rochester. Great. And thanks for having me on again, guys. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, the latest on an FDA warning about a type of medical device used to repair pelvic organ prolapse in women. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. The FDA on January 4th announced it was giving the surgical mesh devices that are used to repair pelvic organ prolapse in women a class three classification. Now that means they're a high risk medical device. The high risk classification follows a number of adverse events associated with the products. Pelvic organ prolapse occurs when the muscles and ligaments that support the pelvic organs weakens, allowing those organs to slip out of place, creating a bulge in the vagina. 
The new FDA classification applies only to surgical mesh devices used for transvaginal repair of pelvic organ prolapse. The FDA order doesn't affect the use of surgical mesh for other problems, including stress urinary incontinence. Joining us in the studio to discuss the treatment of pelvic organ prolapse and the new FDA warning is Mayo Clinic urologist and surgeon Dr. Daniel Elliott. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Elliott. Good to see you. Thank you. Nice to be here. So we've got a new problem here, or a problem that you've probably known about, but the FDA has now recognized that it's a potentially serious problem, uh, and it has to do with pelvic organ prolapse. And tell us exactly what that is. Pelvic organ prolapse is a condition that happens with women with age, childbirth, obesity, that the support within the vagina weakens and structures like the bladder, uh, intestines, uterus can fall out or fall down, causing pressure and fullness. But this mesh is the bigger problem when it comes to this FDA warning. So where does the transvaginal mesh come into this story? Absolutely. Transvaginal meshes came around around 2005. They had very little, if any, data to support they worked better than the traditional repair. No one at Mayo ever started doing the meshes because we just didn't have data to support it. And then very rapidly, we started seeing serious, life-changing complications. Women coming in with devastating pain, bleeding, and problems that we could not fix at all. So the FDA started warning back clear back in 2008 that there could be a problem. A major warning in 2011 saying, hey, there's even more of a problem. So the 2000, the one that just came out now, is uh, late. It mm-hmm. should have been done a long, long time ago because these have been pulled off the market about two or three years ago now. Now, traditionally, before that, uh, how was this fixed? How was prolapse fixed? Well, traditionally is what we're doing now. Right. We just use stitches, sutures uh, that are absorbable that cost about $2, and we just repair, bring the tissues together. So we do not use meshes through the vagina because the meshes, what happens is they scar down, and that causes the pain, bleeding, what's called erosion or extrusion through the vagina, and these are problems we can't fix. I see on a daily basis. Going So going back, why, did, why was the thought that this mesh would be a better route to go? Just for something to sell? Well, in theory, said, let's try and do something better. Let's make the surgery stronger. I'm all in support of that. But they didn't have any long-term data to show it worked. And so subsequently, it came on the market fast. It got adopted by many surgeons. And subsequently, a lot of women have been damaged from it. So did the surgeons find it relatively easy to use and, and maybe quicker than the old conventional surgery for prolapse? It was much easier to use. It got marketed to a lot of uh, physicians who adopted it very rapidly. And, yeah, it is pretty easy to use. You use needles and trocars to go through the various different tissues to hold it up. But, again, the big issue was zero long-term data show it was safe. Now, uh, we need to be clear about the difference between the mesh being used for this problem and mesh that's being used for stress incontinence. And, And how are those two different? significantly different. The mesh itself for slings is relatively small. Slings used for stress incontinence. For stress incontinence, exactly. To hold up the urethra to stop the incontinence. Correct. The meshes that are used for prolapse are very large. It's a sheet of them. Uh, It's, you know, 8 inches by 10 inches with arms going various different locations. It's a large volume of mesh. Um, It is true the mesh is identical, but the volume of it is significantly different. 
And if a woman has a complication related to the mesh, you said you're seeing uh, referrals of women who have had this done, and sometimes you can't fix the problem. Oh, I, uh, daily when I'm in clinic, I have a woman com- women coming in, and I cannot frequently fix the problem. It- devastating pain. Wow. They can't sit down. They can't lie down. Uh, sexual intercourse is gone because of this. I mean, it's devastating. We're used to in surgery and all medicine trying to help make things better. In this situation, I can't. So as many times I have to tell people, I cannot fix you. And that's the devastating part of this. So they're just doomed. There is no fix. You take yes. the mesh out, I assume, and then uh, the old problem is back? Or There's what do too you much do? mesh. You can't the take it is, out? The, the, the meshes for prolapse kits, the arms are going through the gluteal muscles, the rear end. They're going through the operator frame, which was part of the pelvic muscles. Arms going everywhere. You cannot. It is physically impossible to get all the mesh out. And so that's why initially some surgeons tried to, but then these women, you can't operate in the pelvis like that. You, you devastate the bladder, the vagina, the rectum. And so many of us, myself included, don't operate on it because you can't fix it. Just so you just try to control their pain. Exactly right. And as you know, that's not an easy thing to do and usually not possible. How many women in the, in the United States had this done? Do you have an idea? Yes, I do. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these have been done. And hence the reason why you see you can't turn on the TV or Internet without seeing an ad for mesh litigation. It's the largest litigation process in the United States. History. That's how big it is. When I called you and said, do we need to address this on the radio program? You said, everyone is coming out of the woodwork to talk (laughs) with you about this because it's such a big deal. What happened on Monday the 4th? Oh, absolutely. I get emails all the time from all over the nation. Again, this happened in 2011 when the big first warning came out. Um, And, yeah, there's a big uproar about this. Well, it's a little bit difficult to understand, isn't it, why the FDA ever approved this as a treatment for for prolapse in the beginning? (sighs) Yes. It is, unfortunately, from my opinion, not just my opinion, many of us who do this type of work, a major failing of the FDA. This got through without any long-term data. And so subsequently, very rapidly, it came out in 2005. Within 2007, I start seeing these individuals come in who's devastated, or myself or the urogynecology department here. Devastating problems. We had never even seen this before. We didn't know how to treat it because it was a brand-new problem. Again, this, mm-hmm. that's why it's so devastating that this happened in the first place. Hundreds of thousands of women in the United States. Yep. Do an Internet search on it. See what the number of cases are out there. And again, it, it's hundreds, if not more. Uh, hundreds of thousands, if not more. So what do patients need to know um, about this de- latest development in this story? Uh From the patient perspective right now, it probably won't change anything because these have all been pulled off the market. This is more about the legal Legal somewhat, but the future of meshes placed through the vagina, they are going to finally make it very stringent requirements for this to ever get proved again and probably won't be able to. Dr. Elliott, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for bringing us up to date on on a most difficult problem, the latest development in the treatment of pelvic organ prolapse using mesh. Dr. Daniel Elliott is a urologist and surgeon at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thanks, Thanks, Dr. Elliott. Thank you. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer for the program is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.